Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're uh, following on actually from our episode that we we released the first part last week with Scott um, and then we're releasing the second part now and continuing on with his uh, recent talk and discussion kind of in more in depth about it. So hope you enjoy the show. And yes, yeah, so, so following on from that, then you kind of you then then start looking at separating out the client, the idea of this client, you know, how do you interact with the behavior and the, and the state and actually, you know, your involvement with it then becomes a little, you know, kind of you kind of split the two. And you, know, you talk about match commands. And this is quite, you know, a, a common pattern, you know, and the idea of you adding commands, which are essentially like data equivalents then of the desired behaviors. And it's another processes problem or another, you know, computations problem to hatch or handle dealing with it, handling the state, doing the behavior. I'm just wondering kind of, you know, when have you found this to be a good technique? Is there a lot of places you can incorporate this approach? Yeah, well, the the, the batch one is basically the most, I, I kind of take this batch thing and I evolve it into actors and event sourcing and and so on, you know, later on. But um, yeah, there's the idea of instead of calling functions, turn the functions into, you, you call, you have data, and then the data is interpreted by somebody else and the nice thing about data is you can pass it over the wire and uh, even if you don't pass it over the wire you've completely decoupled the client from the server or the the person who interprets the the data and that's you know we're always trying as developers we always want to have an architecture which is as decoupled as possible we really want to minimize any kind of coupling any kind of dependencies between our two components and so by using data rather than having function calls that's a great way of doing that and one of the nice things about a functional language is that because you have union types or choice types it's quite it's really easy to 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 create a type that represents all the different commands you can do so the batch example was just uh the very kind of lowest level example of doing that where you you have a you know a command to move forward or a command to to uh, put the pen down or whatever and you can just send that to something that runs runs those commands yeah because you can be very expressive and in you show you you did show in in that talk you know the expressiveness of these data types following on from that actually then you you, you then moved on to the actor model you know what what is the difference then between the command batch command approach and then the actor model is it kind of a, a one level up yeah i mean the the thing about a batch is it's a batch command i mean you basically run it and then everything happens at you know you don't you have to run the batch so you have no feedback while you're doing it with the actor model you basically instant it's more instantaneous so i i send one command and then then it handles it straight away and then I send another command and it handles that straight away. So I can see, I get instant feedback. It's kind of not exactly real time, but it's, you know, near near real time response, responsiveness. Of course, doing that makes it more complicated um, because you now you have to have, uh, the actor has to be in memory all the time. It has to keep track of its state. Uh, it has to have a, a, a live message queue and, and so on and so forth. But uh, you can see why um, the actor model is very popular because it's a great way of, of getting the benefits of decoupling and having someone else manage the state for you but still still feel like a kind of live a live program and this is then the actor model then is i'm right thinking is what alan k really thought oo was being yeah he thought of he was very anthropomorphic so the idea with the objects is they were little people 
And just like with people, you ask somebody, you know, I say, please, can you open the window? Please, can you go over there and do that? And I don't care how you do it. I'm just ask. I'm, I ask you. I give you a request, and and you do it in the in the way that you think is fit. And so that, that was his idea of how objects should work: is that kind of anthropomorphic. They represent real things, and you ask them to do something, and and how they do it, and what they need to keep track of to do it is their problem, and and not your problem. So, and the actor model was invented independently around the same time in the early 70s. It wasn't really OO, but it was again. It was the same. There was a lot of that in the air at the time, and so it wasn't clear until afterwards, because Smalltalk didn't use message queues directly. I mean, it had a kind of internal dispatch model. But, um, you know, nowadays, the actor model aligns very closely to this exact same thing of encapsulated objects that you send messages to, and they and they do it. And, I mean, the thing about the actor model is, in a pure actor model, uh, it's a one-way communication. You send a message, and that's it. It's fire and forget you know if if the, the if you if you if you if you want the thing to tell you it's finished you have to, it has to send you a message in return so it's quite a, it's a very different model from you know classic traditional programming so there's some gotchas with it you know and again so this is in the actor model everything is very opaque everything's a black box the actors are black boxes and that's deliberate i mean that's the whole point of doing it that way i mean the actors rapidly are very close to being microservices mm. not a lot of difference i mean in some ways um yeah w- within the implementation inside the actor can be pure function so for testing the actor logic i would give it a you know if i say if it's you know here's the state here's the input and you should generate this output so you can certainly have pure p- purely functional actors from but from a from the big picture yeah they're, they're harder to work with because they're hard to compose, they're hard to see what's going on. So doing kind of integration testing, uh, functional testing is is kind of trickier with actors. And there's a lot more. It tends to you can you can you can get just like you have spaghetti code, you can have spaghetti actors. You know where every actor is talking to some other actor. Uh, you know, and there's no you've no idea who's talking to who and what's really going on. And just keeping track of dependencies is quite hard. That's really interesting. And, and then following on from that, then you mentioned a very, you know, highly buzzworthy thing, event sourcing. Yes. Um, and that's become a very interesting and, and pe- a lot of people are kind of looking into that. I'm just wondering, what actually is event sourcing? So event sourcing is, again, not the idea is that rather than keeping the state, the final state in memory, you keep track of the differences because every time you change your state like something happens and you know you your your state changes from a to b rather than only keeping the most recent version of the state you keep you keep all the diffs of the state uh and you store those diffs in a in a storage and then when you want to recreate the state you just load up all the diffs and rerun them and that gives you the latest state so it's a bit like you know losing uh, source control or something you don't always just keep the latest copy of the code you keep all the versions that led to the copy and so it has the benefits you get you get um the benefits of being able to replay things which is great for debugging from a business point of view you get an audit trail of everything that happened um often the the events can capture business processes that you wouldn't capture if you just had the latest state uh, the classic example is if I'm if I got a, like an online uh, e-commerce site and I put something in my shopping cart and then I take it out again, uh, my shopping cart's empty. But the fact that I put it in and then took it out again, that might be really interesting from a, a mm. business analysis point of view. 
that is not captured if you only have the latest state. If you just say, oh, your basket's empty, you can't tell whether it started off empty or whether I added a bunch of stuff and then took a bunch of stuff out. They're the same from a final state point of view, they're the same thing. But from the process of how you got there, uh, for a lot of business applications, you know, the journey, in a sense, is, is more important than the destination or just as important as the destination. It's like, how did I get here? Is often is the kind of question that gets asked quite a lot in business and event sourcing. And, and also for developers, I mean, from debugging point of view, it's like, how did we get to this state? What's the history? How can I figure out why, why did we get here? Having all the steps that led up to that state can be really valuable. So that's sort of the benefits of event sourcing. And, and obviously there's, you know, st- techniques to actually make that happen in practice. It's, again, it's more complicated than just, you know, there's, it's always a trade-off. It's a, lot, it's a lot more complicated to implement in some ways, um, but the benefits are there, you know, for a lot of people. So um, I just, yeah, I just wanted to present that as a, a, yet another option for people to think about. Well, no, I think it's really interesting. And, and it is one, as you say, you mentioned the fact that, you know, your customer will ask these questions or you'll be asked like, okay, so it was very important. Like, why did, when did they remove that, you know, and all these things. And historically you know well in the past you'd have to preempt this you know it was storing data and only having knowing the current state you know you would have to provide logging throughout and and it's i've been able to go back and do different projections and being able to see this information and and nothing's ever lost and it's always been able to get back up to a certain state and be able to replay things maybe oh let's see what would happen if this you know if we were at this point again and we replayed it using this type of you know action or these type of things you're able to explore a bit more yeah it's, it's i think it's very i think one of the things that's changed is the that the cost of storage is so cheap now i mean when when you know when a, a megabyte of disk space costs you five thousand dollars you didn't want to store extra data you know but now that you you literally, from a practical point of view, it's unlimited how much data you can store. It's so, so cheap. And so, yeah, storing 10,000 events, rather than storing the customer data, you can store the 10,000 things that led up to the customer data. Yeah, so it takes up a lot more space, but so what? You know, I think part of that is, if you, you know, the, the whole thing of, of you can't have, you can never have too much data uh, is, is definitely kind of one of the trendy things right now is always store more, you know, store everything that ever happened and figure out what it means afterwards. And I guess an, another way of thinking about it is it does decouple the, well, that goes into the next step, which is the sort of stream processing, which is separating what happened from what it means. So with event sourcing and, and with stream processing, which is sort of the next step after that, you basically say this is what happened, and then what does that mean? That can be a separate step because sometimes the interpretation of what happened can change over time. So rather than trying to, in, in a lot of, in, you know, in traditional kind of CRUD apps, the um, what happens and how you interpret that are in the same piece of code, um, and they're they're kind of tied together completely. But if you can separate what happened from how to interpret it, then um, that gives you a lot more flexibility if new business rules happen or if you need to interpret it in different ways. You know, in one way you, you care about this kind of thing, like, it, like a, again, the, the e-commerce might be an example where the business people, the, the people who care about money might want to interpret everything about how much money was made and or lost. For people who care about marketing, they might care about customer behavior, what items did they click on and how long did they spend on each page, all that kind of stuff. So it... it the fact that you can separate the interpretation from the data is actually quite a powerful uh, technique. And uh, so I talk about that in, uh, in other, you know, going on in the rest of the talk as well a couple of times. 
Yeah, and, and actually, it's interesting because we, we've explored this at work, the idea of events. And, and there's been a couple of, you know, one of the things that's been very interesting with it is the fact that, like you said, you know, the fact that you can kind of, you can explore what you've done compared to what you want to do with it in very different ways. But also we found that testing it has been, is very easy because it is just the fact of, okay, we've got this very declarative set of events, these pure functions, this reduced state, what actually happened. Yeah, exactly. Again, yeah, it makes it, everything is a, it's, it also goes to this thing of transparency again. The more transparent it is, the more that the inputs and outputs are very explicit, the easier it is to test, the easier it is to put it into a certain state and, and see what happens and to play with it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons. There's many reasons why it's popular. I think it's, um, it's a very nice, it's a very nice model of working thing. It doesn't play very well with, um, traditional SQL databases, um, and traditional, uh, you know, relational model of reporting, but it certainly is, is great for kind of the time-based model of reporting, which is also now very important. Absolutely. I think like, it's one thing, you know, with with like the flux model, the Facebook flux model, and then, you know, in, in the Redux model where, you know, you are just dispatching these actions, these events, essentially, um, that are just data, and they're able then to replay and go through. And obviously, just being able to send that off to for debug, you're able to get yourself into a state exactly where they were at as opposed to just knowing the final step. It's very hard to know something that's just an aggregate, you know, just a computed value. It's better off knowing the true, you know, source of truth data, which is what these are. Exactly. And it's just, I mean, it's the same reason why we like, as developers, we like source control. It's like, I want to be able to see what changed between, you know, one commit and another. If I didn't have that, it's kind of, you feel like you, once you get used to it, I think this is a relatively new paradigm, but I think once you get used to it, um, it's very hard to go back. You know, just like it's hard once you're used to source control, it's very hard to go back. And and what's interesting is that this model is actually very old. Uh, there's a famous quote by uh, Pat Helland, I think, which is that accountants uh, don't use erasers. They don't. Accountants don't keep track of how much money you have. They keep track of every input and output to your bank. Now, how much money you have. You work out afterwards by adding all that stuff up. But what you actually record in your ledger is the change to your bank amount. You know, you change to how much money you have. You don't record the totals. You record the changes. And if you made a mistake, you you write down another change, which, you know, compensates for the mistake. So you don't erase the mistakes and pretend they never happened. You always, you, everything is always added on. It's an append-only model. And that's, yeah, I mean, the, that's, you know, that's a thousand years old. So um, people have been doing that, you know, uh, well, maybe not a thousand years old, but it's a very old model of accounting. So we're just, we're just, as developers, we're, we're, we're quite late to the party here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, you say you, you touched a bit on string processing and like the idea of FRP, functional reactive programming is a, another, again, another mm-hmm. really hot topic and ev- a lot of people are doing it. You know, I'm just wondering what is stream programming then compared to event sourcing? I know you touched on it a little bit, but maybe just expand on that a bit more. Yeah, well, I mean, with event sourcing, you have an input. If you start chaining these things together where the output of one process is another bunch of events, which is then the input for somebody else and they spit out another bunch of events which is the input for somebody else you have these event streams and the event streams become the major source of input for people so that's your you you rather than working with a database where you have to read records and stuff you have a, a stream of events and that is what you that's what you work off in terms of doing your anal- you know your your understanding of how the system works and so that's it's reactive in the sense that you don't go and fetch the data the data comes is fed to you 
And this is a, you know, in order to make this work, you need a uh, infrastructure that supports event streams. Something, something as simple as an RSS feed will work, um, but, you know, the things like Event Store, the Event Store database, or, or Kafka, or I don't know, there's lots of whole, a whole bunch of ways of doing it. But um, you, you need to, it's, it's a nicer model, you need, but you need, the infrastructure is is very different from what most people are used to. But again, you get, you get, by having these little mini processes, I hate to say, I'm not going to call them microservices, but <laughs> you can see where microservices sort of fit totally into this model. You have these mini things, each of them does one thing, you know, it takes a bunch of events and says, oh, uh, you know, based on these events, I think this other thing happened, and it spits out another event for the um, next person to consume. And that's a very, uh, you know, for, for certain business models that's an extremely useful way of doing things and, and and actually with both of these past things you know functional reactive programming and event sourcing have, have you used these in in real life projects to be honest i've just played with them myself obviously other people have used them so i wouldn't call myself an expert in actually implementing this kind of stuff um i'm just trying to explain it to myself and explain to other people in terms of the uh, stream processing, um, Jet.com, the e-commerce company which uses F-Sharp, has had been quite successful using this approach for for actual you know real life business. And I mean, I'm sure there you know there are many other examples of people uh, doing this. I think LinkedIn, the guy at LinkedIn, I think Kafka came from that. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, other people have done very very similar things so if you want real implementation stories um i'm I'm sure there's quite a few out there and finally actually then you kind of you go into another segment and this is actually like handling dependencies so dependencies are everywhere and like the idea of behavioral dependencies and moving away from hard-coded dependencies into the idea of being able to you know inject them in um, and you do mention, you know, the object-oriented way and then the functional way. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, what are the pros and cons of both? Like, do you have anything nice to say about the object-oriented way? Is there compared to using a functional approach? The silence tells yeah, it. I think I think the um, the problem with uh, the object-oriented way is that you end up there's a couple I, there's a couple of different problems. The first problem is that you need the language. Most object-oriented languages, I don't know any do, don't really support dependency injection kind of naturally. You have to write um, interfaces, and then you have to write classes, and then you often you need an you know to pass all the interfaces around to 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 inject them in the constructor and so on. Uh, a lot of people use IOC containers or frameworks to help you do this. There's just a lot of it ends up with quite a lot of overhead. Um, just the actual mechanism, or you use something horrible like uh, Spring. Uh, you, everything's in the XML. Yeah, a giant XML file, and it loads it all up and sets it all up that way. That's you know not so good. But there's another there's another problem, which is that the 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 thing that you tend to inject in an object oriented system is an interface, and interfaces can have more than one methods. And often they do, and often they have lots and lots of methods. And every time you say, I just need this extra method, let me just bung it on this interface. And now all of a sudden I've got implicit, unexpected dependencies. Like I didn't really want someone to have access to that method, but I couldn't be bothered to add a new parameter to the constructor because it would break all my code. And so you end up you you know you end up with these interfaces which tend to get bigger and bigger and i mean there are yeah there's guidelines don't do that the interface segregation principle don't force people to have 
you know, don't have things on the interface that people aren't using. Um, it's, but it's a principle, and it's not enforced. The natural tendency in OO is to make things bigger that way. It's so much easy, easier to add a method than it is to try and add a new parameter. Um, so it becomes, you, know, you tend to get bad habits. It's so easy. In the functional model, you don't pass interfaces, you pass functions. And if I need another dependency, I have to pass another parameter. And that naturally has a, a counter force to you having too many parameters. You tend not to want to pass 40 parameters to a function. You could easily pass 40 methods in in one single interface, but you, you don't want to be passing 40 parameters to a function. So you tend to, you don't need the interface segregation principle because you're not going to do that, you know. So, um, and the functional languages have partial application built in. So if, if I add a new parameter to my a new dependency to one of our functions, I can just partially apply it, and then anyone downstream of that never even knew it existed. They, from their point of view, they've just got a function that did what it did before, and the fact that it had this extra parameter baked in is now is invisible to them. So you don't need, you know, dependency injection libraries and stuff in a, in a functional model. So yeah, I think I think the functional model is nicer. It's everything. It's uh, one way I like to explain it to OO people is that if you take the interface segregation principle seriously you should have you know all interfaces should only have one method and at that point it's basically a function so i mean yeah you can there's i mean it's a bit of a glib you can you know there's counter arguments to that too but uh, that's that's just a quick way of explaining why why i think functions are nicer i mean there are problems with passing in functions as well but the i think the problems are less than they are with oo style dependency injection yeah, because it's really interesting, actually, because there's, there's the two types of OODI, dependency injection, and it's the idea of constructor first method. And is actually, you know, you think of it really at a method level, you're thinking, okay, I'm passing in this interface, but this interface, you can actually really explode that out, splat it out into every different function that that interface actually has, which is really what you're depending on in that method. But then in the constructor, if you're just passing something in the constructor, you're then giving access to that, that dependency within every method that you have within that class now, or that object instance exactly which then explodes it out even more which is very interesting when people you know i, I was going to say like the, my argument then would be oh what about method dependency injection but really when we, you just mentioned you know the fact that isp are really looking at interfaces people just add methods onto an interface and yeah there is that kind of thing of well i'm only passing in one parameter but really that isn't one parameter that is how many of those functions in that interface it's a it's a really as you say it's more declarative and it's more expressive you know the functional approach and it's really more explicit of what's going on yeah, exactly. I mean, the, it's the kind of trying to hide, especially in large projects, anything that can go wrong, you know, any any dependency that can be taken will be taken. And um, this goes all the way back, even back in the early 70s, the whole thing of information hiding. Uh, if you If you expose something in an interface, somebody somewhere will use it. It's the path of least resistance, it is, isn't it? Just, You're just like, just, oh, I can grab that. Exactly. Great, it's an easy commit there. Exactly. I mean, basically, you know, that's just that's just our nature as developers. It's like, oh look, I'm just yeah, I'll use that, and you end up with dependencies that you didn't necessarily want people to have. I mean, or it's a security hole. I mean, another example is if you have a database interface or a repository interface, and it allows you to update a customer, but it also allows you to del- delete a customer or change their password or something. You could accidentally have a piece of code that deletes a customer when they weren't supposed to be able to do that because someone made a mistake in their code or, or deliberately made a you know. So there's security holes and, and chances for errors. So yeah, I like to be much more explicit. This particular function needs these three things. This other function doesn't need all three things. It only needs one of them. So why why pass in all those three things? 
Following on from that is, and this is probably a, a bit of a big topic, but the kind of concept of an interpreter, um, and it really kind of goes into this free monad, but I won't really, you know, say that too much. But what is the idea then that you're brought up as, as an interpreter? Well, it's actually not that far away from the batch model. So in the batch model, you turn um, a function call into a data structure. So one of the, you know, you just pass in the, all the parameters and the name of the function, and you pass that as a, as a, you turn that into a data structure and you pass it to somebody who is then going to basically interpret that and say, oh, you want this function, let me call that function with those parameters that you gave me. The problem with the batch model is that there's no feedback. You can't make a decision based on the output of that call. So the, 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 the person who's running the batch isn't going to stop halfway through and say, actually, this thing you know, return this, what would you like to do now? The batch model doesn't support that. But the the interpreter model basically does. So the interpreter model is that not only do you pass in the function that you want to call and the parameters, you also pass in a callback, as it were, so when that function gets executed, the output of that function um, can be returned to you. And you say you can then make a decision based on that. In the turtle example, I have the thing where you hit the wall and you make a decision based on hitting the wall. So, it's a, again, it's more complicated, but what it does allow you to do is it, it completely decouples you, just like with the batch model. The, the implementation is completely decoupled from the API, as it were. So the, the interpreter model is the API is the data structure that, you, that contains all the operations that you can do and the parameters for the operations, but it has absolutely nothing to do with how those things actually get implemented so they have to at some point that data structure gets interpreted it's almost like a little program um i mean it is just a basically a program it's a program that says here's something i want to do and when you've done this step ask me what i want to do next and if you give this i'll, I'll do this and the program itself or this data structure is then interpreted by an interpreter and because it's interpreted you can have multiple different interpreters look at the same data structure and do something completely different. So for, for testing, it's fantastic because you can set up the data structure and then you can test it without doing any I.O. For example, you can pretend to be hitting a database and not actually do it. For uh, You can interpret the same thing in different ways for different reasons. So in my turtle example, I have one thing which moves a physical turtle, but another interpreter can just keep track of the distance that you moved so that he knows when to change your batteries or something. You can have multiple interpreters for the same thing. And so it gives you, it really, really is very flexible. More work, more complicated, but more powerful too. That's it. The rewards in certain cases are worth the uh, investment. Yeah. And it's it's actually very similar, I feel. Isn't it very similar to the async a way, you know, that you're kind of delegating what should happen based on, you know, you're giving it the action of what I want to happen, but it decides when it wants to do that. Yes. I mean, it's a callback. It's, 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 I mean, the, the async uh, model is you do something and then, yeah, call me back when it's done. And the interpreter is, is analogous to that too. Yeah. Run this, run this function. And when it's done, it's not really, it's not quite the same thing as a callback. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of similar to a callback, except the callback in this case in the interpreter model gives you back a new program to run. So if the async, uh, each step, uh, it's just a, a callback that just you know what to do next, but it's, it's it has no the next thing you do doesn't have to be another async it can be anything. With the interpreter model, the next thing you have to do has to be another step in the program. So you have to build basically you build up the entire program in memory as a data structure, and then you run that entire program without even running it. You you can then be a build it up before you even run anything. Exactly. 
Yeah, so you, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's very similar to writing code. I mean, if you're writing, in, you know, in .NET, you have a you have a bytecode or a Java. There's bytecode as output, and then that bytecode is then interpreted by the bytecode interpreter or anything. So it's 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 funny you're writing a program using a programming language to write a kind of program that gets interpreted in your programming language. Um, <laughs> it seems you know that might be overkill, but in, it, like I say, it, it really does allow you to completely separate um, or isolate. It forces you to focus on the API. It's like, here's five things I can do. Here's the five functions I can call. I have, lit- I literally cannot have any idea of how it's implemented because I'm creating a data structure and I have no idea how it's going to be interpreted. And actually, it brings up the continuation passing style. I'm just wondering kind of what your thoughts are of CPS. Yeah, again, um, CPS is very interesting. Uh, I think it's hard to use in practice. A lot of these things... In fact, I think the continuation, I mean, that's the most fundamental style. All monads, for example, I think can be reduced to like a continuation monad. And so the continuations are basically the most fundamental thing you can do. And I think even a lot of compilers actually convert things to continuation parsing style as part of their compiler logic, because it's easier to understand how uh, variables are used and for register allocation and so on and so forth. But I mean, I'm not a compiler expert, but it is a great technique. I think the, the consensus is it's a very interesting interesting technique to actually use it in practice is kind of painful so um these in f sharp you know the kind of computation expressions there's various tricks to make it easier to work with and to have specific examples so the interpreter is a particular example async is another example which are kind of targeted to particular uses and not just have a completely generic one which is kind of hard to understand and and finally, and we have actually, we have actually covered almost all of them. Then is the compatibility based API, and this one was one of the ones where I just had an aha moment, thinking I've never thought about that actually implementing this in code. You know, I've used it in Hatos and REST based you know setting, but never in actual code have I thought about this. So I'm just wondering, like, what it actually is then this concept of a compatibility capability? I call it. Capa- sorry, yes, capability. Sorry, so, uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, capability is just something you can do. And it's originally came from the world of security modeling, where capability is: Do you have the capability to write to the disk? Do you have the capability to, you know, open a, a socket or something? And you know, if you can't, if you only have those capabilities, or you by providing by limiting what capabilities you have, you can, you know, it's a security kind of feature. So um, I I'm using that. Though not in a way of security, but as a way of documenting the API again. A lot of this is a lot of this stuff is about how can you express the API to the client in a, such a way that the client can't screw it up. And so the capability model is rather than returning, rather than using data structures again. Now I'm going back to using functions. So in the in the in the in a turtle API, you might say, um, you know, if it was a JSON thing that you're passing to the web service, you might say, you know, I want to move here, I want to do this. In the capability model, rather than saying, oh, just call this data structure and uh, call this endpoint, and if something goes wrong, I'll give you an error message, the capability says, I'm actually going to tell you what you can and can't do, and you'll only be able to call the things I let you call. So I'm going to give you back a bunch of functions, and if you can't move because you've hit the edge of the thing, I'm not going to give you a function that allows you to move. And if you can't put the pen down because the battery is dead or something, I'm not going to give you that function. So I don't have to. I don't have to let you. Don't have to call the function and then me give you an error message. You literally will not be able to do anything bad because you will not have the function that allows you to do that. So it's more. You can think of it almost like a dynamic API, an API that kind of 
changes as as you move into different states in the program. I mean, a very, I mean, websites are a good example. You know, when I go to a website and I'm not logged in, the only function in many cases I can do is log in. But once I've logged in, I can, you know, post a message and I can edit my profile. If I go to the profile page, you know, I can't post a message. I can I can change my address and my email and, you know, and then or I can log out. There's, at each step in the process, there's only a limited number of things you can do. And the capability model is a way of ex- explicitly expressing that. At any given state in the system, there's only a certain number of things you can do. And those are the things which are exposed to the, the caller, uh, which is why it's a natural connection with uh, the RESTful model, because that's exactly how the the hypertext as the engine of application state works. You pass back a bunch of links in the HTML, and if the link's there, you can run it, and if the link's not there, you can't run it. So, but to me, it's a more general approach. It's not just for that. It works, you know, for any kind of thing, especially if you care about security, if you care about people not wanting to do something bad, you literally don't give them the capability to do it, and then you don't have to test you know don't let them do it and then tell them they can't it's just don't let them do it in the first place well and also you know with like the rest model it, it allows you a escape hook to be able to say look I, I want to change this ability now you know I, I, when i'm in this state now i can move or something it, it allows you to control what they can do and change over time yes and that's the one of the big advantages is that uh, especially for the, the hypertext thing, is that you'd rather than, if you if you allow if you if you know what the API is, people tend to hard code the clients to the API. Uh, and it's, if rest people end up hard coding the the links into the code. You know, it's like if I want to edit a customer, I go to customers slash edit slash ID. You know, and that means it's really hard to change the API because there's a now you've now got an explicit dependency between. What the client knows, it has to know exactly how the server works in order to, you know, to call the API. With the capability model, yeah, it's much, it's it's um much more dynamic. It forces the client not to be coupled to the server. The client always has to ask, "Can I do this? What's of, you know, here's the things I can do. Can I do this? Can I do that?" And it's also more exploratory because if a new feature becomes available, it can get added to that list, and it's not going to break any of the existing clients. And if a feature is no longer available, you can t- you can kill it, and it can't break any of the clients because none of the clients have been have hard coded that feature into their into their usage. They can't because you know it's an optional function. So yes, yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting model. I don't know that anyone's actually used it too much in anger, um, but I think it's got a lot of potential. Certainly, it's a good way. It's an it's an interesting model to think about. Yeah. I say, like, thank you so much, Scott, again, for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. I know we've almost, I think we've racked up an hour and 45 minutes of your time. So I really appreciate it. It's really interesting. Good. It's just fun. I'm, I'm happy to, to waffle on about this kind of stuff anytime. On that note, then, like, you know, obviously you've got the, I'll put all these things in the show notes and your NDC, uh, NDC talk mm-hmm. that you did, you know, this year. I was wondering, is there any bits on, on, you know, you did on the recorded version, maybe that you want, you wish to elaborate on? Is there any other solutions that you didn't get a chance? Because I know you said there was 15 of them. Um, actually on your blog post are any interesting other bits that you'd like to maybe explain or no i think i think i took the the uh, i think those are the most interesting ones in the talk 13's a kind of arbitrary number so you know (laughs) i had to do that because it had to match the poem but um i think they are different i think it's interesting enough i wouldn't want to overwhelm people with more different ways of doing it. i think certainly enough somebody and, and somebody one of the people posted on the blog said okay here's 13 different ways to do something which one should i use and i said that's a good question. The answer is use the simplest one that gets the job done. Don't dive into the complicated stuff just because it's there. You know, so, you know, the, all these things, event sourcing and, and reactive 
FRP and also yeah it's interesting but if you don't need it don't don't make your life complicated keep things simple is my number thing you know play with these things but um don't actually put them in production in, 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 unless you really need to no, absolutely i think that's a great place to still end and again scott thank you so much man we definitely have to have you on the show again if you're yeah. uh, up for coming on cheers then brilliant awesome well audience another great episode and uh, we'll speak to you again next week goodbye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at three devs and a or follow us on twitter at the number three devs and a maybe